Hello, I'm Harriet Mansell, and this is the If a Tree Falls podcast. Welcome back. This week, I am once again joined by theoretical physicist Felix Flicker for the second half of our conversation on physics and wild foods. In this episode, we discuss more about wild foraging, how subjective the senses are to individuals, Japanese tea ceremonies, Felix's brilliant book and how science explains things that were previously thought of as magic, all culminating in an attempt to answer the podcast's namesake question. If a tree falls in the forest when no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? It is a brilliant conversation, not only about Felix's fascinating work, but also surprisingly how much there was in common with my own. Despite the different career trajectories that Felix and I have taken, what stood out the most was that the lens through which we view the world offered great similarities in perspective, seeking to explain the unexplainable and understand how things, simply put, can be more than the sum of their parts. So I was at my um, friend's house last Sunday morning mm. and I woke up and I was just having a flick through. Um, he had just like copies of New Scientist strewn everywhere. Mm. And I'd like never really read New Scientist before. No, I just, right. it had never really occurred to me. And I started flicking through an episode and I was like, this is really, this is cool. I was like, this is what I need for my Sunday morning. And then I, obviously like the next I turned the page and then there's your article in there. And I was like, this is great actually. Like, because I was wondering why I was finding it so interesting to draw these parallels because, okay, so I read your book and I, was honestly reading it because I thought, Felix has written a book on physics, that's cool, it looks amazing, it says the word magic in the title, let's give it a go. And I read it and I was really surprised at A, how engaging it was. Oh good. <laughs> For the subject matter, in terms of my preconceptions. Yes, right? I know. Okay. Obviously it's very interesting, but my preconceptions would have uh, had an impact on whether I would have picked up a book on um, physics or not. Yes. I did. And it was engaging and insightful and uh, well pitched in terms of to a uh, kind of physics peasant like me uh, <laughs> <laughs> i uh, and i drew some parallels straight away i was thinking well actually we're actually looking at similar things in terms of our experience of the world and i like that immediately and obviously we use different language to communicate things and you have a scientific discipline and i do not <laughs> um, <laughs> But it was pretty cool to read the book and to see all that stuff. You know, there, there are so many terms that I'd have no idea what they mean. I've actually, I've learned quite a lot by having to just read about things that you're talking about and Googling them. Okay. Uh, so thanks for that. <laughs> but they, are they explained in the book? Or, uh... Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. And I've been Googling, you know, quantum things and I don't, you know, the idea of something like quantum entanglement or even like a quantum computer, mm. that it's just, it sounds like it might be a world away from my world of operation. Yeah, basically, thanks for, thanks for writing the book because it's, uh, it's been pretty interesting. Oh, great. <laughs> well, you know, you say you don't, you're away from a scientific discipline, but you know, obviously uh, you're actually doing experiments with things and working out what works and what doesn't work. I mean, that is just science, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at, at school, I, I, it was reported to me that Mrs. Ramsden, the cookery teacher. Oh, Ramsford. Oh, no, it's Ramsford, wasn't Ran, it? Was it Ramsford? Mrs. Ramsford. Ramsford. She once declared that uh, cookery is the only true science. <laughs> <laughs> Physics, chemistry, those aren't actually science, only cookery is. I didn't take food science at school. <laughs> I don't think you missed much. <laughs> Did you take it? I, 
Well, I didn't take it beyond the time I had to, but I remember I made some volcano cakes once. And oh, no, you I... mean you did it in like year seven and year eight and year nine? Probably up to year nine, yeah. I think I would have dropped it at the first available opportunity. Also, but like reading your um, reading your article as well, I was thinking you're just you're you're trying to approach more people. For, you know, you're trying to take condensed matter physics to a broader spectrum of people. Yeah. And um, all of these parallels between our disciplines does make for a nice little conversation, actually, doesn't it? So, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I've got so much stuff to ask you about. So, okay, good. I don't know. I brought my notes along, so there were some questions that I was thinking about asking you. And they were kind of going to be for people who might be listening to this and thinking, well, just explain some of the basics to me. Okay. But then I went and I was, was reading so many different articles that you've already done and other podcasts and you've kind of already given those answers. But I guess you just have to give them again and again and again. I think so. Yeah. Because I was going to say to you, like, oh, define condensed matter physics. But I've got your definition here. I've forgotten what that definition was, which is it? why it's good you didn't give me the questions in a, ahead of time, because <laughs> yeah. I'll probably give a different answer now. Yeah, no. I'd say, you know, it's the study of matter, so, you know, the familiar stuff around us, solids, liquids and gases, uh, and the transformation between different types of matter, and also how matter comes about from the interactions between things on the atomic scale. So, like, how atoms fit together to form a solid sometimes and a liquid other times. Mm -hmm. How do they change from a solid to a liquid? That kind of thing. Which I imagine is quite important, again, in, in chemistry and so on. Sorry, when I'm saying chemistry, I'm thinking of uh, cooking, though. Yeah, thank you. Yes, it is a science. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it is. But, I mean, we, we don't record our experiments in the way that a scientist necessarily mm. would. Because you get different types of chefs. You get chefs who work quite instinctively, intuitively, creatively. I mean, like, I would say myself and my sous chef, Danny, we mm. are massively working with the season. So if something is growing, we're picking it and we're going, okay, it's in its prime, we love it, this tastes great, how do we deliver that to the plate? Because sometimes things lose their aroma and their flavour over time and sometimes you need to work quickly and then other times you want to preserve or ferment or do a number of other uh, processes to take the flavour and give it to the person eating it. That is... Um, handled yeah through a series of experiments um, mm. but we just remember <laughs> we just don't write them down and explore them but did you say you were thinking of writing a book or guide to getting wild yeah produce and turning it into food yeah because one thing i realized over the past 10 years where i've been feeding people so many different wild ingredients and i know that i've been, i've trained in picking these in, in how to pick these ingredients and i've learned everything i can learn about these wild ingredients through what i've been told and through what i've tried to find out but there are these huge voids in terms of the information that we have and those include handling, safety, preparation, different ingredients sometimes require, according to the information we know, a certain way of handling them in order to make sure they are safe for human consumption because as opposed to cultivated produce and, and farmed foods, these mm. wild ingredients, they haven't had certain properties, um, you know, kind of get cultivated out of them. It's our belief that those properties that make them taste different and good because for me, my focus is getting access to that spectrum of flavour that does not exist in mm. the supermarket. But with those ingredients and potentially those properties that they contain, which we know a little bit of information about, and I'm sure a lot of scientists know more information about it, but, but there's no central database for that information. So in terms of understanding the properties that the food contains, and then also how to handle that produce in a safe way, there's actually no 
safety handbook or guidebook and there's a lot of misinformation circling around mm. within food and people who use wild ingredients and I see a lot of people using ingredients in what I would consider an unsafe way so I become quite anxious when I go to eat out if a person is serving wild ingredients it's so easy to just see how um, many people make mistakes when you just go on Instagram mm. and you see chefs posting pictures of certain ingredients and you're thinking that's not the ingredient that you've said it is <laughs> <laughs> and that's really dangerous yeah. because someone, a supplier, isn't coming to your door going, here's some spruce tips. <laughs> and I know because I have a certificate in picking spruce tips that these are spruce tips and you're able to now use these. And there's information on how to use spruce tips. People are going out and, and picking from a myriad number of trees mm. what they think is edible and what isn't. And it's such a dangerous world that I now have fear and anxiety mm. about how to take that to people. Yeah, I, I definitely think there is uh, a lot of missing information. I could list countless examples. <laughs> but then I think as soon as you start writing this thing, uh, you are, I think you're already doing a scientific thing in uh, trying things out, even if you're not recording it on paper, you know, you're, yeah. the, the knowledge you're gaining and then passing on to people uh, about what works with what is scientific. But, but as soon as you, you're documenting it in this book, then... Yeah. You are basically taking the next step in making a scientific record of those yeah. things. I feel like the, the types of information that I'm seeking are from scientists mm. at this point in what I'm doing. So I suppose you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's. I, I guess one of the points I wanted to make in the book is that um, science is often portrayed as a thing that there's a set of people who are sort of, uh, you know... They're, they're the people who have access to this knowledge and most people don't have access to it and it's mm. this kind of big like tome of information mm. that these kind of priest-like figures can access and then they make these proclamations to the rest of the world and that's not what it's like at all you know science is just the process of continually questioning what you think you believe or, or, or you do believe it but you think you know it um and you just keep going back and questioning those things and just testing, like, well, does that really happen? You know, that's what we do in, in physics, but that's that's the definition of science. So this idea that it's a set of facts that some people have access to is is, is a really kind of damaging approach to science. Mm -hmm. I think with things like environmental issues, it's particularly problematic because, uh, you know... I, I, there are, you know, obviously there are people who deny that climate change exists and it kind of becomes a fight between science and non-science, doesn't it? Mm. But it doesn't need to be because it, it, it can become that because I think the people who, who don't want to believe in climate change, they feel like there's a this set of people who they're not a part of that set. And those people claim to have access to this information that they think then they can then say, well, I don't believe that authority. But when you see that it's not the scientists are not like an authority because they're a scientist, they're an authority because they've like questioned whether these things mm. are true and they've tried to work through the assumptions that go into these mm. models and they've looked for data to see if it's true and then they've presented it it's it's not some hidden knowledge that people can't access and i think that the, the way people portray it is that has been damaging because then it's led to the situation where other people think well i don't want to listen to scientists anymore then mm. but they should be listening to them not because they're told they're an authority that they should listen to they should listen to them because they're, they're just people who've thought quite carefully about that subject and have presented why they believe certain things in detail tested and tested they tested it and explained what yeah what their reasoning was yeah so i i, I wanted to try and make that point that science is a much broader set of things than we would naturally think it is i suppose well i think you know from someone who grew up studying i mean we touched on this last time we spoke i grew up thinking that i was not scientifically minded mm. um because in school um i was told i wasn't 
particularly good at maths or science, obviously getting A's at GCSE and science wasn't good enough. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, and, and I think you had the same experience with English. You know, you were told English was not your forte, you know, writing. Right. Well, you told me that the other day. And that's a... <laughs> I did. Yeah, no, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I would say that uh, the, the main thing school, school English classes taught me was that I definitely can't do English. Uh, <laughs> but well, I, I did manage to write a book in the end. Yes, I do think they pigeonhole you somewhat. <laughs> right, exactly. But basically, what school taught me, or what growing up with the limited, limited apparent knowledge I had about science, was the fact that science to me appeared quite stuffy, a little bit very distant from a world that I could ever operate in. And I think that even you just saying, well, you, at the very beginning of our chat just then, well, you operate in a scientific realm. My brain still automatically goes to, no, no, I'm in a creative sector hmm. because I put food on a plate creatively, but that's not actually, that's not the reality. We work to, you know, to take your word, we try to alchemize, <laughs> um, we try to alchemize ingredients into more than the sum of their parts. And you use that a lot in your book, like this idea of your well, the physics and emergence and mm -hmm. something being more than the sum of its parts. And that's the sentiment that I would use to describe what exactly what we do. Um, okay. yeah. Because the overall experience of, well, no, listen, I would hope that the overall experience of coming to eat in my restaurant or going to eat in someone else's restaurant uh, when someone has put care and attention uh, the magic and sprinkling of love you know i'm not going down that cheesy route don't worry uh, no, but you know uh, they understand where the food has come from they have used their knowledge to create something they put it on the plate they've educated the customer potentially a little bit in terms of something new they've created a new sensory experience for them the atmosphere is lovely there's a great energy in the room everything's just so lovely candles twinkly there's a there's a situation where the experience feels more than the sum of its parts and well that was the first place that my mind went in terms of drawing in a immediate parallel yeah i'd say you know my book was the first popular book on condensed matter physics and i thought well i need to explain what that you know, what's different about this branch of physics compared to the ones people have already heard of and i think this is the central bit of condensed matter physics is studying the collective behaviors of things and as you say it's things where um the the properties are emergent and what do you mean by that well they're they're more than the sum of the parts mm. And that's not to disparage other branches of science, obviously, but, you know, if you take the, the better known things in physics, something like um, particle physics, that's the study of sort of elementary particles, like thing like an electron that can just exist by itself. And, you know, we try and reduce the world into its basic building blocks like that. And that's an important uh, approach. But condensed matter physics is really the opposite of that. It's, it's saying, well, what happens when you've got huge numbers of, of these things? Like in any lump of stuff, you've got um, a... a, a a massive number of atoms and each of those is made of electrons and protons and neutrons and so on and it's not the individual properties of those particles you care about it's what happens when you put those huge numbers together you can still describe it as made up of protons neutrons and electrons because that's what matter is uh, but to just describe it that way would be to miss a huge part of what's going on when you study things like like a solid and a liquid they could be made of the same atoms but they're behaving in extremely different ways right and so clearly you would miss something in just saying well it's just made of atoms I think the example I gave in the book was an owl, right? Because <laughs> there's no owl particle in uh, the standard model of particle physics, but owls exist, and we don't have a problem with those two things both being true. And it's true that the owl is made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and you could, in principle, describe an owl with uh, 
by describing what those things are up to, but you would clearly miss quite important features of an owl if you just described it. So it's definitely more than the sum of its parts. It is. When we were, my agent and I were discussing with different publishers the book, the owl was brought up quite regularly, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> my agent sort of uh, realised that the, uh, the, the fact that an owl was being mentioned so prominently early on, he, he was like, I think this kind of gets to the heart of what's going on in this book, you know, because it's not just about physics. <laughs> it's about, I don't know, the, I guess my personal interests. Your in life terms, and but... your reality as you experience it. Yes, I think yeah. that's it. And I'm quite into that sort of thing, you know, bit, bits of nature and stuff. I mean, that is, that's what you picked up from the book, I suppose. There's lots of references to yeah. the natural world, which are not strictly part of condensed matter physics, but I'm quite interested in things like owls and... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. When I when I use this idea of magic in the book, as you probably picked up, it's uh, I think it's really like the ability of the world to inspire is what I mean by mm -hmm. magic. But I kept a little diary of magical things I saw around the world because I thought I need to work out what I mean by magic. And I noticed when I go on walks with Jeffrey, the dog, you know, walking around in the uh, woods and so on, that would be mostly where I'd see magical stuff as I, as I thought of it. It's just, it's just seeing like the natural world and sometimes it's quite inspirational when you see a nice scene and the moon yesterday being massive, you know, I mm. think everyone would agree that's quite magical without it being, uh, you know, it's not unphysical, but when the moon is very big and yellow, that's quite exciting, isn't it? And I think it's quite inspirational. I think there's a moment of those little magic moments that, I mean, I was going to ask you about this. With that book, with the magic of matter and things that you can and can't explain in the world the magic has been the things that we haven't been able to explain so much the, the sense of how does that happen how does that work then there's this moment of looking at the moon and it seems quite large and um and glowing and amber and there's a moment of you experiencing that and going well, yeah, that is more than the sum of its parts, but I can't explain everything about this moment other than the fact that the moon is large and I'm experiencing it. If I turn it into a question yeah. uh, <laughs> and answer mm. it, yeah, that, 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 I like the idea of it. I, what I, I did say in the book, or what I, this idea I came to a few times, mm. was this idea of three stages of magic. So this was a real discussion I had with someone um, who I, I bumped into in a desert once and uh, got chatting to him. And he was, it, he turned out he was a professional magician. And I asked if he knew who Darren Brown is, because uh, it wasn't in uh, the UK. Um, so I, I didn't know how well, it was in the US, and I didn't know how well uh, known Darren Brown was over there. And it turns out he's very well known there as well as Excellent. the UK, which is good to hear. I said he was, you know, Darren Brown's my favourite magician, and, and this magician said he, he agreed as well, actually. And I said the thing I really liked about Darren Brown is that he makes you believe in magic again, you know? Because when I watch magic shows that had happened in the UK before that, like, say, Paul Daniels or someone, you don't think he's doing anything. The magic's not real, right? It's a trick. But with Darren Brown, you watch it and you believe he's really doing the stuff he says he's doing because he's cleverly framed it in terms of things that we don't still understand in terms of science, like the, the idea of the mind does lots of stuff and plays tricks on you that you we don't fully understand why it does those things, right? And I thought the, the genius of Darren Brown is he really made me believe that what he was doing was more than kind of traditional magic tricks. But like the more you watch it and think about it, the more you start to see that actually a lot of it could be understood as traditional magic tricks, but maybe he didn't do it with psychological manipulation. Some I think maybe he does, some I think he doesn't. And the more I've thought about those part how he does things, I, I start to realise more of them could be explained with uh, traditional magic. But that's even better then. So there's like the first stage of appreciating Darren Brown, I said to this magician, was that I just watched the show and thought that's amazing, he can do all this, this amazing stuff, and I loved it. But then the more I studied it and thought about it, the more I started to see maybe it actually 
the trick was even deeper because he made me believe he was doing that stuff, but actually he was just doing kind of traditional magic stuff. But he'd framed it in such a way that I believed the thing was actually really happening. And that was even cooler. And this magician I was talking to said he agreed with those two stages. But he said there's a third stage of appreciation that I hadn't reached yet in my appreciation of Darren Brown. And he said that's the appreciation of the professional watching him do it. And so he said he, this magician understood those two stages in Darren Brown. But he would watch the show knowing that there was actually how the tricks work, basically. Because he himself is a magician. But he said he just has returned to that first stage of just being wowed by the show. But he can do it like with the the uh, kind of finesse of a professional and he said that Darren Brown's actually very technically skilled as a magician he thought he's probably one of the best uh, technically able magicians as well so it's not just that he's made you believe in magic again but he's actually very technically adept when he does it and so then I thought okay this three stages of appreciation that this magician is expressing for Darren Brown's magic is really the same process you go through with appreciating the world I think so with the moon, for example, if you're like a, a young child, you look at the moon and you just get very excited about that, right? That's just an exciting, magical thing to look at. And then as you get older, you start to understand it. And you're like, well, I understand the moon. Like, you know, I, I understand that it looks relatively bigger when it's closer to the horizon as a psychological effect. And I understand why it's gone a bit orange today. And, and you start to rationalize it. And, and then it sort of starts to lose its magic because you're like, well, it's not magic. I just understand it more and I didn't understand it before. I think the, the real trick is to try and get to that stage three, like the appreciation of the professional. Because if you become a scientist, it's presumably because you're enthused about the world and, you know, you have that idea of magic that inspired you when you were a child. And you should really be trying to return to that uh, enthusiasm about the world, right? So you shouldn't stop at stage two and be like, I understand the, the moon. I think you should return, you should move on to stage three and be like, no, it is magical. I was right when I was a child to get excited about the moon. Moon. It doesn't matter that I've understood some of the properties and perhaps not all of them of what's going on there. But I can return to that same sense of enthusiasm, but now with like a sort of deeper understanding that I've got by uh, studying as a, as a scientist. I think it's interesting that that leap from the second to the third phase of appreciation as, a, as, a, as an adult who's gone, I accept that the moon is there and uh, we can explain this in some senses. Right. Um, but that moment of going, oh, yes, I'm going to allow myself to return to my childlike state of wonder and awe and accept that, that that's amazing. <laughs> there, there's a moment of participation in, in, in the world and in life and of going, OK, I've analysed and I've dissected. But beyond that now, I'm allowing myself to return. Turn mm. to phase one and I think that sometimes can be a stumbling block for people in general um, right. just allowing themselves to uh, reignite the sense of magic in 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 life actually just in general that's yeah. my experience anyway yeah I um, agree I mean this seems like it fits with your uh, what you're doing in Robin Wilde doesn't it yeah oh do you know so just before we move on from Darren bloody brown he's my favorite magician as well oh, obviously, is he? obviously I think that's standard in the UK at least doesn't it <laughs> I mean I, I am obsessed with Darren Brown I mean in terms of just probably not like you are because you've analyzed and dissected Darren Brown in terms of real true appreciation but so what I want to know from Darren Brown right is yeah. our sensory perception of the world yeah okay I mean maybe probably people have already done this and know the answer to this maybe you know the answer to this but he has the, he's devoted his life to uh, effectively manipulating people's sensory experience of the world, mm. whether it's through hypnosis, mostly through hypnosis, and and and, and other things. Um, like, to what extent? has he worked with flavor you know and because it's not just flavor so when i talk about um hopefully a dining experience being more than the sum of its parts mm. um there's this moment where you're tapping into a person's well hopefully all of their senses or all of the senses that we're aware of and yeah at what point 
you know, has he has he worked with people and, and their sensory experience of food and, and flavour and smell and, and also like nostalgia and memory and all of those things as well? Because hmm. um, I haven't seen anything on that. It's obviously hard to put into a TV show or a stage show, isn't it? Do you but, know, there's a, a study, um, I mentioned this to the wine steward in our college in Oxford and he got quite the offended wine at the steward. suggestion. Yeah. You yeah. had one? Yeah, he, he's the professor of chemistry. And he, oh, right, um, okay. But he also stocks the wine cellar, basically. Sure. He's very into wine. Um, and I mentioned this study that, uh, because they had the wine tastings, like, once a term or so, um, of, of different wines they had in the cellar and so on. Yeah. And I mentioned that... So there's this study, uh, like the the uh, overview of the study is that basically they took um, sommeliers and gave them white wine with red food dye in it, and none of them identified that it was white wine. They all thought it was red wine. And he, I, well, I think they bona fide sommeliers. So I looked into it, and you, you can read the paper. It's quite easy to read. So they are training as sommeliers. Um, and it, it, it uses a different phrase for them. But they seemed fairly legit. And it wasn't as blunt as just saying, is that white wine or red wine? Because obviously you'd be a bit suspicious if someone yeah. did that. So instead, they just asked them to give their like tasting notes on it. And, and they did sort of control groups where they gave them actual red wine and so on. And they showed that the, the, the notes they gave were those of red wines. They used certain phrases that mm. for red that they wouldn't use for white and so on. And they... There was a statistical significance to the fact they were giving. I red mean, ones. So, so Darren Brown would be clearly steering them towards towards the the use of the use of language as well. Right? Uh, wouldn't I mean that's what he does, isn't it? He I, I yeah. don't know how he does it because I'm not a magician <laughs> or a scientist. No, need, no, I don't know how he does it either. But say. but I would be fascinated to know to what extent you could truly impact a person's experience. Mm. Do you, we should try and reproduce that that experiment yeah would you be interested you must know some of the trained sommeliers yeah yeah we should do that experiment i would love to do it that. would be good wouldn't it i yeah. think i suspect it might work but it's not to say that there's it's nonsense right that the tasting wine is a load of rubbish it, it would be that the the color is such a strong indicator that it's changing your experience of the wine <laughs> <laughs> but we should try the wine thing I, I'm yeah interested. i'd actually be interested because i think for me that's that's another line of a huge line of inquiry is impacting a person's sensory perception of, the, of what they're experience you know of what they're experiencing i know how you can heighten it i know you know we employ methods effectively to heighten a person's enjoyment and a person's experience by tuning them into their taste buds, by tuning them into the experience. And part of that is being meditative, I would say. Part of that is landing that person in that room at that moment and engaging with them in a way that they are focused and they're not distracted. Mm. So you've got, um, you've got their attention and then once you've got that, you, they're engaging with their senses and the whole experience more. So you are heightening their experience by just doing that. And that's why telling people the story of their food mm. and putting an aspect of education into a meal enhances a person's experience. It's, it's far, for me, seems like a simple equation, mm. but then there's more to it than that. And I wonder, not that I want to start hypnotising people like Darren Brown does, but I wonder, you know, what to what extent you can really truly impact a person's experience. I, when we walked in the woods the other day, I talked to you about when my taste buds went away and then they came back oh yeah and that's been an interesting journey for me because only I can determine or only I can say that my taste buds seemed heightened compared to previously but maybe that's because they were taken away for a period of time so maybe I appreciate them more now mm. but maybe truly they did come back with more of a vigor but I don't know do you know um you've reminded me so this idea of being sort of very mindful about your eating I guess that's 
mm. you know, and, and creating a situation where that happens. I was thinking that there was, well, it, I, I went to some Aikido classes. I don't want to advocate that as a martial art because I don't think it's particularly sensible. But um, they did have a nice sort of ceremony that you go through at the start. Mm. Um, and you come in sort of flustered from your working day or whatever. And you have to, well, you have to get changed first. Then you kind of get in your position and you'll sort of kneel down there silently. And they'll say some kind of meditative stuff that, that causes you to focus a bit. And then they have this amazing uh, giant bell and they, they'll have these in every aikido dojo and they give the bell a good like dong mm. and it's kind of like i think it's taken from like zen practices and it really that, that bell sounds great and it, it does really help focus you mm. and i think in that moment after that you could you could you know if you'd set that up instead to be prepared to eat a meal i think that could be a an interesting way to go um and then i thought it reminds me of um i once did this japanese tea ceremony mm. i think i might have mentioned this the other day but I was invited along with my friend, um, a Japanese guy who, well, he, he's in, in that uh, organisation, uh, Shumei. Separate to that, he, he wanted to do a tea ceremony, which he'd, he'd um, his wife actually was the tea master, but she wasn't uh, available at the time, but she'd sort of trained him. And that's a really similar thing, I think. So you're basically just going to have tea. He was telling us about some of the setup for it, and you, you come into the room, there was three of us, and there had to be three. And then he's on a kind of tatame, the, the matting, mm. and you're going to like, you know, take your shoes off and then kind of kneel down at the mat. And the three of you kneel next to each other, facing forwards to him, and he's kneeling there, and there's a precise sequence of moves he has to do to, to bring the tea over and to pour it. He'd had to choose our cups separately for us. Uh, and, and explained like why he'd chosen each cup for each person at some length like what what he was thinking about when he did that what what how that was going to make us engage mm. with the tea ceremony uh, and then he did it all and it, you know the whole thing takes a long time to have a cup of tea it's maybe like an hour's worth of of uh, ritual but obviously it's you know I've remembered that like yeah. 10 years later and uh, it did change the way I you know I certainly didn't just quaff the tea yeah <laughs> and there's a, that very personal moment that you described where he chose the cup for you mm-hmm. and that connection between the choice and, and the, the human to human interaction there as well is, is, is such a such a big part of it, the personal thing. Right. Yeah. So he said we, he'd asked for information about us before because I didn't mm. actually know him. And so, yeah, he needed to know who we were and, and what we were coming to the ceremony for and so on. Uh, in order to choose the the cup, but also in order to prepare how he was going to do things. And he said something really interesting about <laughs> the uh, environment he's trying to create, but like what you are trying to create in the tea ceremony. He said it was two things. You want the guests, I think you want them to be comfortable or, or at ease, but at the same time, slightly awkward. I think it was something like that. <laughs> but you want to feel, they should feel welcome, but at the same time, they should also feel slightly uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> I, that is a principle of meditation. Typically, they say don't lie down when you're meditating because you might fall asleep. Mm. If you want to meditate, you need to have focus, and to to do that, you should sit with mm. a straight spine, right? And uh, there's this aspect of being a little bit uncomfortable and going through that because you're alert and then you're focused. And I think that that is right. true uh, because it it means that you don't drift off. Mm. Right. Yeah. Staying present and mindful. I guess that's yeah. It was. It was that. Because there aren't so many experiences day to day. Well, I mean, when you're researching, perhaps, you know, you, you have laser focus or when you're, you know, going down one of those rabbit holes and you're excitedly uh, trying to figure figure something out. Yes, you're, you're in that moment. Not use one. One is surely in that moment. But there aren't all of these opportunities in day to day life where we where we have that. Yeah. Give someone a ritual or give someone an, an experience of something different and something new and something that requires focus or at least appreciation 
you're heightening that person's sensory experience and then yeah you're giving them a, a memory and an emotion which carries forward and that layering gives nuance and more detail to future experiences and that for me builds on layers of of magic for someone so in your book i love that you cited examples of explaining something previously unknown or unexplained or unexplainable um that was thought of as magic so for instance you mentioned the ability of humans and bats to see the polarization of light yeah and that was in, well, I wrote this down just so I would remember, but in 1844, which seems quite a long time ago now. But it makes me wonder what other what other kind of perceptions and things like that that we haven't yet discovered. And it just opens up that whole realm of possibility in terms of our experience of, of the world. And you can probably see why that interested me in terms of hmm. drawing the parallels there. And I think that, you know, it also made me think, you know, we're governed by our senses so much. And there's this moment in nature where you just can't explain it all, which we've also spoken about. But you, you also touch on that in your book you cover the benefits of nature about the well-established health benefits to spending time in nature I didn't expect to read your book and hear that sentence actually not that I would have disregarded that as a point of interest for you but you say there are well-established health benefits to spending time in nature such as an alleviation of stress and anxiety but what is it about nature which grants it this power and then you mention your friend Damien Hackney who was working on that idea to build the connection and sense of peace so easily achieved in nature for people who have experienced city living and I know we spoke about that the other day but that's something that I do still find really interesting that your friend would be working on something to yeah, try to emulate a feeling of, of calm that is connected with something that you would associate with greenery, I suppose. Well, so he was actually my Kung Fu instructor. <laughs> so that's, uh, I, I didn't mention that in the book, but that's, that's who he is. So yeah, maybe there's another connection there. But yeah, as, well, we discussed it the other day, but I'll mention it again just in yeah. case. But uh, he had this idea to for his PhD to um, take this idea that you go out in nature and it's 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 proven to make you know to have various health benefits both physical and and mental you know it's, it's good for your mental health to be out in in nature but most people now the majority of people on earth don't live out in nature they live in cities so you know and, and that's that's just a necessary fact and it's only going to happen more and more probably in the near future at least so how do you get that same sense of have those same kind of benefits from your environment in the city is it possible Perhaps it's just something inherent that you know, trees and, and rivers and fields and so on have some property of them that causes humans to get health benefits. But I suspect not. I suspect it's something more like a, a, a sense of connection you have to those things mm. that could potentially be trained in you with other, other things, maybe man-made things. I've explained this idea a few times over the years since Damien explained it to me, and I, I really I think it's brilliant, but some people have some resistance to it. They sort of, they almost, I, I sense some people are a bit offended at the suggestion that you could make uh, concrete put there by a person in a city be in some way equivalent to like trees and fields that are there naturally. I don't think it should be offensive. I think it should be, you know, you should see these things, they're all parts of the physical world, and I don't see any inherent reason that they should not have the same sort of uh, benefits on people. That something that's falling somewhere in between a piece of artwork and then the kind of natural beauty of nature, I suppose, and that you're mm. saying, like, putting reverence on a piece of concrete in a city. Uh, but, yeah, if, if we spoke about this the other day, didn't it? If someone understands something a little bit more, 
maybe it's like the three phases <laughs> that you need to be in their phase two of understanding in it and then they need to go back to finding the magic of it. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> this three stages thing. To, yeah. For a conversation to have happened with a magician in a desert, it's, it's, it's done me pretty well. <laughs> so it's, I don't think it's just physics and so on yeah. that it applies to. As you say, yeah, I think it, that could be a good way to think about these things. <laughs> I like that you mentioned the uh, Tower of Physics that, that had an impact on you when you were young and you thought, oh, OK, I need to broaden my mindset. Yes, you're looking around the books to see a copy of it and I don't have it because someone blagged it off me at some point. Oh. <laughs> I, I lent it out to a lot of people when I, I was... I brought uh... one copy. Oh, you brought a copy? Yeah, only because I need to read it. I haven't read it. I've read oh, uh, the preface in chapter one, but I, had, I didn't have time this week because I was um, busy cooking in the restaurant. No, yeah, well, that's the, the issue, isn't it? I, I find it... I, I need to read a lot more now when <laughs> writing books and I, it, I find it very hard to have time because I've got to do physics as well. Yeah, I, I love the Dow of Physics... Uh, and yeah, it, I got it because uh, I wanted to read about the physics bits and people had, had mentioned it as a good book to learn about various aspects of physics, but that had this kind of Eastern mysticism side to it. It's, it's not flawless, it, there, yeah. it's, but that's fine. That's part of the, the process. And I think just allowing a broader mindset in, is, is helpful. I think that this is part of my reason for wanting to talk to you and talk to other people is um, engaging with people from different backgrounds and different disciplines an exchange of information is, is, is just going to allow a broader mindset, a broader right. uh, perspective or consider different different things when looking at the world. And for me, that's exciting. Do, do you know there's this book I do have on the shelf there somewhere called How the Hippies Saved Physics? Okay. Um, I, I, I have to say, I, it was sold to me brilliantly by someone. They, they, so my friend pitched it to me and I, yeah. I was like, wow, I've got to get that. It, I, I didn't get out of it as much as I'd hoped. <laughs> but I can tell you the pitch they told me and I like the, I like the pitch more. The idea was that we came up with a lot of modern physics. So the, in modern physics does have these parallels to Eastern mm. mysticism. But the Tao of physics was the first place to really point that out. And, and things like mindfulness. And, mm. you know, I think the, the fact that I got into martial arts was probably more having read the Tao of physics, like opened me up to that kind of thing. Before that, I would have been quite dismissive of the idea. So it was quite, you know, influential on me, not only in terms of physics, but in terms of, uh, yeah, being open to reading about other stuff, learning about different mm things which I'm really glad I did. So this book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, is saying that why are they these parallels if if there really are? And it says that basically during the Second World War there was a huge amount of scientific development going on because you know the, the funding for it went through the roof and you, mm. you can look at advances in various branches of science and you'll if you plot them as a function of time with any kind of measure of of uh, what we've learned about something like development of ceramics and things like that you know it, it go it, it's sort of pottering along then suddenly in the second world war it shoots up and it, it everything does this basically because there's loads of money and 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 uh, you know a big motivation to try and develop scientific um work very quickly um as part of the war effort but so we developed this idea of modern physics, things like quantum field theory, because they, we needed to apply them practically quickly. And the argument in this book is that it takes kind of about 20 years after that before people really settle down to try and work out exactly what it is we've done. Because we've worked out these theories that make let us make incredibly precise predictions about the you know the world on the subatomic scale obviously we were rushing to make a nuclear bomb at the time so we needed to understand these things but there wasn't time to really think about the deeper philosophy of why the thing was working we just did the we worked out the calculational methods and and then used them to get to and we could see that they were working we got great fantastically precise predictions about things 
But yeah, so his argument in the book is that by about the 1960s, we've settled down, we've got these calculational methods that work, and it's time to start trying to understand the philosophy of why they work. And he argues that essentially it was kind of a coincidence that at that time there was, you know, in, in California in particular, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of hippies about, and there was a lot of overlap between those two communities. Um, and Fritjof Capra is one of the people he highlights who was doing, uh, uh, he had a PhD already, I think he was doing postdoctoral work in Berkeley. And then there were like lots of hippies in Berkeley for separate reasons, and these two communities kind of meshed. So it was natural that the people who were trying to come up with a philosophical framework to understand what it was we were saying about the world were naturally thinking in terms of kind of ideas from Eastern mysticism that were spreading around that area at the same time. And there was, and, and I think it's David Kaiser is the author of um, How the Hippies Saved Physics, who so gives various explanations of this and he gives accounts of like well these various organizations kind of combined the two they would get hippies and physicists together and and have these fun weekends but that amazing parallel between hippies physicists me and all these other people we're all trying to make sense of the world yes Uh, and that seems to be the foundation of physics and trying to make a better world at the same time i suppose right yeah understand what it is now and how it could be improved i suppose yeah no it's 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 just it's it's interesting uh, there there are so many things that are yet to be explained and the, i mean you 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 uh lecture in the weird and the wonderful right that's what you said to me the other day or something <laughs> like that i was like <laughs> what are you good. actually lecturing in and and you said oh and you well, you tell me in your own words actually <laughs> i like that the weird and the wonderful i hope i said that <laughs> <laughs> well that's how i interpreted it well that's what you said i can't remember well we're, we're um i'm trying to work out what i'll be teaching next but i teach quantum mechanics at the moment yeah. And I, I think it's the, you know, that that was my motivation for doing physics at university was basically to learn more about quantum mechanics, really, because it's it's pretty weird, isn't it? <laughs> as, as our best tested theory of the world, you know, it's worth noting that this, like things like quantum field theory make predictions, certain quantities in that have been measured experimentally and tested against the theory. And they've been tested to one part in 10 billion. So it's... It, by that definition, it's our most precisely tested theory ever. You know, our theory of how planes fly, say, uh, has not been tested anywhere near as, as precisely as, as quantum field theory, but we rely on it to take us up in the air and we, we don't have a problem it with it. It seems to happen. It seems to work, doesn't it? <laughs> it's been tested precisely, but nowhere near to the precision we've done that. And things we, we find intuitive, like, you know, I take a ball and I roll it on the floor and I can predict where it's going to go. But, you know, the theory behind that is not tested anywhere nearly as precisely as quantum field theory. I, I believe in Newtonian mechanics that describe the motion of the ball, but, you know, the, it's it's not possible to make a test that's so precise. But at the same time, the, the kind of philosophical view you're uh, espousing when you're thinking about uh, quantum mechanics or teaching people it's it's a really bizarre world that you're describing and it's forced to be there's no way that it couldn't be bizarre but it's also true you know as, as much as anything's true it's yeah it's it's all very there's there's so much stuff to that's not explained and there's so much stuff that i don't understand in terms of what you're um lecture teaching you know i, I should say i some physicists don't like to think about these things <laughs> i think a lot do really but some don't and some take objection i, I there was a i read an interesting article recently about whether there really are close ties between modern physics and and some ideas from Eastern mysticism. Mm. It was in the 14 times, actually. And it, it was good because it was quite critical. It was written by someone who's a practicing Buddhist, but very seriously. You know, they thought about it very carefully. They know all the nuances of Buddhism. So they were coming to it from that side. And they were saying, well, the problem with this idea of saying the two things are saying exactly the same thing is that what we've done is like taken the scientific ideas, then cherry picked bits of Eastern mysticism that happen to agree, but thrown mm-hmm. away the bits that, that don't agree. 
So there's some bits that, are, that don't fit at all with the worldview of modern physics, and we're just not pointing those out. I thought that's, that sounds entirely plausible. Yes, I can imagine there are various things in those belief systems that I don't know about and probably wouldn't agree with. <laughs> and then another criticism people I've heard people make from the scientific side is to say that people who argue strongly for these this overlap tend to say, well, here's something in physics we don't understand, and mm -hmm. here's something in philosophy or religion that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Therefore, those two things must be the same thing. Now, I think that's probably... I, I've not seen those kinds of arguments made, really, but... Um, I can see that that would be a method you might use to try and uh, claim a stronger link than really exists. Regardless, I think there are clear parallels in some cases that I, I find very interesting. And it, in any case, it inspired me to work on it more it, on the physics side, and it inspired me to take up martial arts and things. One thing that you um, said at the end of your... Uh, you were doing a podcast with Brian Keating, oh, yeah. that's the one. And uh, there were some, I think, existential questions towards the end of it. Oh, and you were talking what? about phonons. Oh yeah. Well, he he he's described it as, as such. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> and you were talking about phonons. Yeah. And I mean, I obviously had to Google that, but I did. I I, I discovered that it's when atoms uh, operate in a differently. Their behaviour in, in as a collective is is different. Is that that's something to do that in in? Yeah, <laughs> like all stuff in condensed matter. Yeah. yeah. What you're describing there is emergence, I think, right? Yeah. yeah I, I don't bloody know, Felix. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm half attempting to ask you a question on something. What if, like, yeah. Back to the phonons. Yeah, back to the phonons. Yeah, well, you're talking about phonons. Mm. What are phonons? Okay. Yeah. The way I describe it is that, uh, so we know that, okay, take light. Light can be thought of either as a particle or a wave. Yeah. Right? A, a famous result of, uh, of quantum mechanics or a sort of necessity. Um, so, right, when you, when you think of it as a particle, it's a particle called a photon. Mm -hmm. And we can say, here's a beam of light. Either that's like, a light wave or it's a stream of these particles called photons mm. and those are like complementary ways to think about the same thing mm. so in quantum mechanics in particular you know you, you have these two pictures and, and they have this relationship between one another um but it's true of sound as well so when we have sound um we think of that as a wave right sound is a wave you don't describe sound as being carried by streams of particles now there's a good reason for that which is that light can travel through a vacuum right you know we see light from the sun and it doesn't need like a medium to travel through it just goes through space and so in the in the particle description of light you can say those particles are elementary particles they're, they're things that can just exist by themselves and can't be reduced to other things with that property that's how I describe them. Now, sound doesn't have this property. Like, we sound can't travel through space, right? Sound actually does need a medium to through which to travel. So you might say then, well, so that there's just you know the the two are not equivalent, and and there aren't particles of sound. No, that, that that's kind of true, but. Actually, when sound travels through a solid, and in particular when it travels through a crystal, say, remember a crystal has a regular periodic arrangement of atoms in it. So when sound travels through a crystal, the atoms vibrate. And you could say that's the passage of a sound wave. If you may remember the GCSE physics, you have these compressions and rarefactions in the, the air. Do you remember those phrases? I do, I do remember this. Now. I think I've literally never used the word rarefaction <laughs> except just, for in GCSE physics. That just physics. took me right back, to be honest with you. <laughs> but sound is a you know, it is wave. And you can, when sound travels through a crystal, you can describe it as a wave. But quantum mechanics says, actually, in that case, there is a perfectly valid alternative description in terms of it being carried by particles. Mm -hmm. And those particles are then called phonons rather mm -hmm. than photons. So a phonon is like a particle of sound mm -hmm. in exactly the same way that a photon is a particle of light. So the reason I like to highlight those phonons as an example, first, they're pretty cool, right? It's mm -hmm. exciting that sound can be conveyed by particles. Mm -hmm. But second... Because they can only exist in matter, like because sound just can't travel through space, then there is no elementary particle of sound. 
So phonons are not elementary particles like photons are. But they're still real, like sound does travel through crystals. You're, you can listen to me right now because I'm talking to you and sound is traveling through the air. Uh, and so yeah, gases and liquids can also convey phonons as well. So they only exist inside matter, but then when they're in matter, they do exist, I think. I think that's the right way to think of it. Mm. So some people try to... That there's a kind of strict reductionist view of the world which would try to say that the only things that exist are elementary particles. And I think that's a very... Uh, I don't think that's the right like way to think of Like they're the only stuff. real things. Exactly. Yeah. But to return to the owl again, well then, owls don't exist by that definition. Mm. All that exists is a collection of elementary particles, which you happen to be calling an owl for convenience. But I think that's a very backwards way to try and view our interactions <laughs> with the reality. You've never actually experienced an elementary particle. Mm -hmm. it, it takes four photons to hit one of your uh, receptors in your eye for you to detect it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it doesn't, you know... That would be to kind of dismiss all of human experience to say that uh, the elementary particles are the only real things. I guess I would say um, philosophically, since we're on the existential section of the podcast, podcast yes, yeah. <laughs> reductionism is not actually at odds with this idea of emergence, mm. that something can be more than the sum of the parts. It's just a question of what you reduce things to. Mm -hmm. So an example I gave in the book was, imagine you're trying to draw a wizard and you've got five minutes to draw one. You, you would probably sketch some stick figure maybe with a hat on maybe an owl on their shoulder maybe yeah. they've got a staff or something you put these sorts of things there maybe they've got like one of those uh, capes with uh, stars and um, planets on it or something Big sleeves. right what you probably wouldn't do in those five minutes is try to draw as many atoms as you possibly could even though a wizard is technically made up of atoms right mm. a little version of felix flicker might have done that it might have tried to draw many atoms mm. Um, but a normal person wouldn't have drawn many atoms, I guess. What's happened there is you've you've reduced the wizard down yes. to their essential elements, yeah. but the elements were not atoms, even though that was one way to reduce mm. them. The essential elements were a silly hat, a cape thing with mm -hmm. stars and planets on it, an owl sat on the shoulder. So condensed matter physics is the same thing. It still is reductionist. Mm -hmm. We're trying to understand the world by breaking it down into smaller parts, mm. but the parts... The parts don't need to be smaller necessarily. They just uh, they might be things that that are kind of collective things. Mm. And in this case, a phonon is a good way to think of stuff. So the emergence, the something that's more than the sum of its parts, is is effectively the human experience and our perception of the things in this argument. Yeah, taking, I guess so. in terms of a hierarchy, humans are humans, and our sensory perception is prioritised at this in this argument. I suppose that's a good way to put it. I, when we refer to emergence in condensed matter physics, we're typically talking about emergent properties of, of materials and things. The phonon is an emergent property. Yeah, I was um, thinking of here a bit more philosophically about the oh, broader no. idea. Oh, Harriet's just forming a couple of little links in her head, that's all. But no, it's, it's the same thing. You know, okay, the idea of emergence is a little bit poorly defined, to be honest, and people <laughs> mean different things by it. And perhaps I'm talking about two fundamentally different forms of emergence, but I think those two naturally fit together. Um, yeah, and I'd say that I like the fact that condensed matter physics is the idea of collective behaviours of things, mm. and I like the idea that, that science can be more than just saying, here's a phenomenon in isolation, it's totally separate from the scientists studying it, it's separate from the rest of the world. I think that kind of reasoning has led to, for example, neglecting the environment. We can say, look, I can take this oil out of the ground, I can mm. burn it, I can do this and that, and that those things are true, but you haven't thought about the fact that yeah, but you can't do that indefinitely, partly because there's finite resources and partly because you're going to destroy the rest of the environment and anyone who's trying to use that stuff. Mm. And, and pretending that the things are totally isolated is wrong. You're, you're part of an ecosystem. You need to 
bear that in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, if the human species is going to survive as long as the planet, then it's going to have mm-hmm. to work in equilibrium with its environment rather than thinking it's totally separate from it. Yeah, and like co- collective behaviours at that point might have <laughs> might have an impact. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, so moving on to the philosophical question behind this podcast, Felix, very connected to everything we've just been talking about. But um, if a tree were to fall in a woodland area and <laughs> and not even a little doggy was around to hear it, um, Harriet is stroking the dog at this point. <laughs> <laughs> stroking Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah. Is it does is it making a sound? <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> you have to answer it, Felix. It's the name of the podcast. Oh, right. You didn't know that? I don't think I knew that, sorry. Yeah, it's called If a Tree Falls because, okay. obviously, like based on that philosophical question, if, yeah. if, if a tree falls in the woods and no one was around to hear it fall, did it make a sound? Which, loosely speaking, forms my line of inquiry here. I want to have conversations with people to broaden my mindset and my experience of what it is that I'm passionate about, which is connecting with wild ingredients and nature, and actually that exchange that takes place between that the land, me, and the people around me, and the people we're giving it to, the, the myriad of questions that exist within that min- miniature framework. So that's that's my question. I don't know the answer to it. I like that it's a question, though. I, I think I mentioned these Zen Buddhist koans, which that is the most famous example of, right, um, in the book. I, I've spoken to a few people about them over the years and their utility. I think something that didn't make it into the book was I, uh, I once had a, a long discussion with a Zen Buddhist uh, monk in Berkeley. There are a lot of them, <laughs> a lot of monks over there, Zen Buddhist monks. I think I had a chat with him when I was putting together a talk about paradoxes, actually. And he mentioned in passing that actually about a third of the trainee monks were physicists, a former physicist. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, he said it's, um, you get a lot of them. That's interesting. I think they're trying to answer similar questions. And I think, you know, we particularly, I guess when you're being a physicist, a theoretical physicist in particular, you're trying to find stuff where it's paradoxical or where you can't answer it mm. the stuff you can answer easily that those aren't the things that get you really excited the things you want the right level of difficulty right and if you keep pushing it i guess eventually you get to these sorts of questions where they've been carefully constructed so you can't really answer them mm. so he gave me some i guess it was his school of thought on on these koans he um so he gave me an example he said he has an example called a what they call like a baby koan to give you the basic idea because the answer the, the idea is not necessarily to answer them right um well, as to, to go on a slight sidetrack, my friend Kristen, who, who does various forms of meditation and so on, she said her understanding of koans is that you can't answer it, but it's it's got enough there that you keep thinking you can answer it. And in trying to think about it, you end up kind of putting yourself into this sort of Zen state of meditation mm-hmm. by getting lost in the in the rabbit hole somehow. Mm-hmm. Or you're like you're trying to untangle a knot that's un- unentangleable, mm-hmm. and uh, by but the process of trying to unentangle it like leads you into this this state of mind where you can focus and and mm-hmm. but also at the same time be quite empty-minded and focused at the same time. Anyway, this uh, Zen Buddhist monk I spoke to gave a simple example, which was uh, he had a bottle of water in front of him, and he I think he said like what is this? And I thought okay, well I'll, I'll bite I guess. <laughs> it's a bottle of water. <laughs> And and he said no. And he's like, um, I don't know, it's a, a container or something. I, I don't. I tried a few things, and the answer was always no. And he said, so I was like, okay, so what would the answer be to this then? Uh, and he said, okay, so the first answer that would be correct is, and he, he kind of picked up the bottle and took the lid off and took a sip of it and put it down again. And and he said these are like baby koans because they're kind of they just give you the basic idea. They're, they're not really a proper koan. But the point is that words are not going to express what this thing is. The action of using it for its intended purpose is is the thing that is the answer. But he said that would be like the stage one. 
to return to this three stages thing again, I suppose. Yeah, I was going to say, how many have we got? <laughs> um, yeah. Stage two, he said, would, the better answer would be, uh, and he picks it up and takes the lid off and said, would you like some to me? And I was like, uh, yeah, I think I will have some water probably. And I did have some, I think. And he said, you see, the point was not to answer the riddle. It was to do that, but also learn to, ha to somehow do some good in the world with it. And, and so stage two was, you know, not only not trying to use words to describe a thing, but uh, to use an action, but also an action that's benefited someone else. Mm. In, in this case, I needed some water and he gave me some. Mm. So he said that's the basic idea behind these koans. He gave me a really nice book, actually, that their, the head of their, or like the founder of their school, had, it, it's um, letters written between their founder and the people learning their branch of Zen Buddhism. And so they're trying to answer koans and, and this, they've, they've been given these koans and they've thought about them for months in some cases. And then they write with their answer to him. And often it's just, <laughs> often you can't tell what's going on. You know, you can't understand even how it's a riddle half the time. And then they're writing these answers that you don't really understand. And then the master's writing back answers that don't, you don't understand. And they don't even appear to answer the thing they said. <laughs> and it's, it's quite fun to read. But the best one, though, in this whole book is once someone just writes back and it says in the book, this answer was redacted uh, because... Well, because of his response. And the master's response is, yes, 100% correct. <laughs> and you're like, what? It gives you the question that just doesn't make sense. They've written something that they've taken out. And then he's written back and like, yeah, that's, that's right. Done. I wonder if that was put in there as like a magic trick. Like a little Darren <laughs> yeah. Brown style thing. Yeah. Like if, if, if you only read things you didn't understand and no one ever gets it right, you'd be like, I'm not going to bother. So maybe they put one in where it's like they have, it's possible to answer it. But I suspect not. I think probably he really did think it was right. Anyway, I'm not going to um, claim to know the answer to uh, whether the tree falls in the wood, does it make yeah. a sound? It's funny, actually, because I asked my mum this question the other day, and I, I, I'm not trying to show her up or anything, but it was cause just interesting to hear her like, very de definite response on the matter. Yeah. But of course it makes a sound, Harriet! <laughs> I said, but mum, there's no one around to hear it, so who's picking up the sound, mum? I just who's who's receiving the sound? Mm -hmm. I just asked her that question quite simply, and she said, Harriet, it makes a sound. Was she annoyed or she yeah. sounds kind of annoyed in this? She was pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think some people don't like the, they don't like the idea that some things they can't answer, you know. I, I, I like that's my favorite thing is that I can't answer stuff. <laughs> I I love it when there's an unanswerable question and the driving force behind this podcast is the fact that I have many unanswered questions connected to just day-to-day -day things that form part of my experience of what I do in this world. Right. I will travel to ask people questions that might help <laughs> form connection between those things. Would you like that here's a here's um the 10th gate is so the different gates are different zen koans. It's a, the, sounds particularly sci-fi at this stage. We're getting quite far into them. This is the 10th one. This is a yeah. tricky one. Here it is. You can try and answer it if you like. Thank you. The mouse eats cat food, but the cat bowl is broken. What does this mean? They don't give the answer, obviously, but I can give you people's attempts at the answer. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just wondering, what, because th this, is a, this is a springboard for... If I claim to even be able to tell you how to start approaching this, then I'm sort of trying to claim I understand something I don't. Mm. Um, okay, like, here, here we go. So he, someone writes, Dear Soen-sa Nim, uh, I've just finished Dropping Ashes on the Buddha, which I read with great interest. I think that's a book. Mm. My answer to The Mouse Eats Cat Food, But the Cat Bowl is Broken... Cat food is mouse food, so the mouse bowl is intact. Sincerely, Joyce. 
And he replies, Dear Joyce, how are you? Thank you for your letter. You say you read Dropping Ashes on the Buddha. That is wonderful. You sent an answer to the mouse Kong An. They call it Kong An rather mm. than Koan in this um, branch. If you're thinking, you won't understand this Kong An. It's a very high class Kong An, like calculus and mathematics. Very difficult. This means that first you must go to elementary school, then middle school, then high school, and finally college. The cat food Kong An is like college work. First you must understand primary point, then like this, then just like this. If you don't understand just like this, you cannot understand the mouse Kong An. Here is the primary point course. 3 times 3 equals 9, 3 times 3 equals 10. Which one is correct? If you pass this, then I will ask you the next course, okay? I hope you will send a good answer to me. If you don't understand, only go straight. Don't know. Don't check anything. If you're thinking, you won't understand. Thinking answers cannot help you. Yours in the Dharma, SS. This is the kind of response we get. I mean, it, it, yeah, there's many back and forth here. Anyway, this is the kind of thing, that's the kind of answer I could give you. But... <laughs> yeah, well, I think I went quite, yeah, I quite like a stab in the dark at the answer. But maybe we, maybe you could submit it once you've had a time to go through, go through some of the, um, yeah, the levels. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I could. I, I found actually here marking a page is a, uh, a business card for a monastery I stayed at in India. Oh, fantastic. It's, it's nice they do business cards. That is amazing. I guess I thought it was appropriate as a bookmark for this book. Oh, God. Okay, do physicists, is there a widely accepted explanation for consciousness? Because um, no. the question is around consciousness. Is there, are there, like, theories that are accepted? Uh, not to my knowledge, but I'd say it's not really in the realms of a physicist to answer that question. Mm. I, I think, like, I know for a fact some have tried and, and tend to be like, obviously it's this and you people are all too stupid to have thought of it. now? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm always very wary when physicists try and uh, comment mm. on, on philosophy in general, really. You know, I, um, mm. I think there's a tendency to think I've understood this, uh, you know, particular mathematical system well, therefore I understand everything really well and everyone should know about that. <laughs> it's quite nice to hear the crossovers though you know just the little just the little thought crossovers i mm -hmm. think well I, i'm interested in the idea of consciousness and i think uh, it's a classic example of emergence right um, yes and obviously it's quite a, a long-standing debate in philosophy as quite to whether is, is there anything more to it than the kind of material component of what's going on in your brain physics certainly can't comment on that but it can say that by studying emergent systems and things like this, mm -hmm. things like phonons, say, that are relatively easy to understand in the scheme of things, we are commenting on something that's more than just the elementary particles. And so, yes, OK, your brain is made of matter. Consciousness certainly appears to be more than just the matter making up your brain, right? And so in that sense, maybe one day we could hope to, to have some understanding. It is some kind of emergent property. Um, and we're starting to think more along those lines in physics, but I'd say we're at uh, two... Uh, earlier stage. Condensed matter physics has only really existed since about 1950. Before that we weren't really trying to work out how the world comes about from uh, individual atoms. But it was interesting where you said not widely known, condensed matter physics not widely known, mm. I think, you know. And it's funny because again, to bring my mum into this, I said, this is Felix's book, mum, on condensed matter physics. Condensed what, she said? I said matter physics. Metaphysics? No, ma condensed matter physics. This went back and forth. I'm not going to keep 
saying she couldn't get her head around it because she she wasn't taught she wasn't taught I don't think at the idea of it uh, mm. or, or anything she didn't know anything about it I said no it's condensed matter physics and I read out from your book and things how, how you describe it and um and for her I said mum this is the underpinnings of of t television screens <laughs> and I tried to say things that you had put forward as as exciting relatable concepts that would explain why it is important was she convinced yeah, she said, oh, that sounds very interesting. It, it is odd that it's so poorly known about. I, I think the name doesn't do it any favours. Condensed it's, it's matter. Awful name. Condensed matter physics is hard to say. Mm. Uh, very opaque, isn't it? I, what what do you think mean? it should be called? Well, I don't have a better suggestion, to be honest. Um, Condensed matter. If I didn't know... So, if, so I hadn't picked up your book and I didn't know anything about it, I'd, I'd think... I would think of a lump of something solid. Okay, good. Condensed matter. It doesn't have to be solid actually but yeah essentially that's it okay you know the basic idea is that it's the study of stuff where the collective behavior is important somehow so in some sense atoms have condensed they've stuck together to do something so when you think of condensation normally you think of um water appearing on a window right mm. it's cold but and that's right because you, you, what's happened is that water vapor was in the air individual water molecules flying around mm. and by providing it with that cold surface, the molecules have stuck together mm. to change state into a liquid and they've condensed. And so the key difference between the two cases is that when it's water vapour, you can essentially think of it as water molecules flying around independently, mm. or mixed up in the gas. When it's a liquid, it's done something else. It's turned into this liquid. You know, if I stick my finger in the liquid, I expect it to behave in mm. a certain way. And it's got like a surface tension. Surface tension is not a property of the gas, right? That's only when it's turned into a liquid. So when, when stuff condenses, the, the, the small bits that make it up start, behave, start behaving collectively. Yeah. And so then it's a generalisation of that idea because then you can think of what happens when that liquid freezes into a solid. Mm -hmm. Well, that should be even more condensed, right? Yeah, no, so like, there is and there isn't a crossover between, um, you know, the, the areas that we operate in. Like, what, what I mean by that is it's, you know, you, you're talking about condensed matter physics, what it is, condensed matter, whether it's a solid or it's not. And you're talking about, well, I suppose like there are transitions between states and we've, you know, we've drawn that parallel with what I do in the kitchen. We, we conduct lots of different mini experiments fairly continuously to mm -hmm. work with transitions between states, matter and how it appears to us. We work with surface tension of, of bread, <laughs> you know, or pastry items. We, we, this is a very tactile recognition of what it is we're working with. And we aren't, like I say, always right it down although sometimes we do obviously in recipe formation and when we're recording certain variables but we we gain an understanding of how we receive and perceive information through a learned experience surface tension or or temperature uh, when sugar sugar is heating you know we we learn how to work with yeah the, the the temperature variables and we take that word alchemy which i love because it is a little bit of that to transform it into something more than the sum of its parts and you put your 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 spin on that with your level of seasoning i mean you have to have the salt in the cooking i'm afraid mm. um, <laughs> um and and seasoning being other variables as well and then for me this is the area where there isn't so much the crossover. Uh, the the wild ingredients that I so adore <laughs> um, have a different flavour profile, which I keep banging on about. They just do. They just taste different. I mean, you've had a little bit of experience in terms of wild ingredients. Some of the big names, some of the wild garlic, the big hitters that, um, you know, very obvious, very discernible flavour profile. But then there, there are other, other ingredients that have a less distinct flavour. Perhaps it's more subtle. Perhaps it's something that some people detect more than other people again sensory perception compounds contained within plants that you know some some people are very sensitive to and others 
you know, just aren't. The same reason why some people like coriander and some people don't, because they experience it differently. Mm -hmm. um, but with these wild ingredients and gathering them at different times of year and understanding that they taste different and have these different qualities to them, there's something about using them that equates to the concept of emergence, mm -hmm. um, but without necessarily understanding that. Um, there is definitely something about the connection to nature and about the experience and also about the flavour and the way that we work with it. Obviously, the way we choose to work with that ingredient then has, um, it will work with the different states in, 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 that, in that kitchen work. But there, there is something about working with the wild ingredients that exceeds what it should be and what it should on paper feel like. Mm. So when I draw a parallel to your work, that's where my unanswered questions sit. I see. But it's, it's, it's not necessarily, yeah, that's where the parallel stops being drawn, if you see what I'm saying. I think I, I think I understand how it works. Could I, maybe I'll try and say what I think I understood, and you can say when it, where I go I am off. prone to a ramble feeling. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I imagine how a more typical culinary experience would work, if I think about the sort of rudimentary ways in which I can do cooking at the moment, I have very, we've reduced the set of things that might go into a food into very separated things. So, okay, salt is like was one that you probably do need to add, but other things will be quite processed and, and taken as far as possible from their origins into like, this is essentially like this chemical that you want to add and this is this chemical. We haven't got quite that far, but essentially that's where we're going with it. And you're not doing that. You're, you know, that, that, that's kind of the easier thing to do, to be like, okay, I need to uh, add more of this thing, so I'm going to take this this product I've bought that's been made sure that it's, it's going to have this one effect and, and essentially no others. I don't know, I'm thinking of things like sugar and uh, salt and so on, but I, obviously there are, you, you might want to add herbs and things, it's, so it's not just like base chemicals, but anyway, it's, it's a, probably an easier thing to do, to be like, I need a bit of that, so I'll add that, and it's a, a reductive process. You said this, this meal that's a finished product is ultimately can be decomposed into these totally separate bits that I understand how they all work individually, and I put them together and they add up to exactly the sum of the parts. Whereas maybe you're saying, I don't want to do that. I want to understand that there's more to this uh, substance than just a chemical. It's It's got the, the setting it's come from, the things it would naturally occur with. And I'm going to do the harder task of not trying to reduce it to those separate things, but to understand that it can be more than the sum of the parts. And when I bring various of these things together, I can make something that collectively is a meal that's more than the separate bits. Whereas the idea of breaking stuff down into simple ingredients and putting them together, you're trying to make things not add up to more than the sum of the parts traditionally. Do you agree with that? <laughs> oh yeah, in terms of a presentation of a concept, what you did was you whisked it all up and you um, and, and, and then you delivered it in a, in a very coherent fashion. You can tell that you um, present uh, concepts and ideas to people for, for a living. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, was it believable though? Was that roughly true as well? Though? I think there were, there, were, there were huge elements of it that were actually, yeah, broadly speaking, very much true in terms of agreed. There are further unanswered questions that I, I have and I think that I'm trying to get to the bottom of, and those definitely, yeah, you did hit the nail on the head in terms of gathering wild ingredients, say, and the uh, knowledge of what comes where and how it grows, that, that does form part of it. There's something I haven't been able to put my finger on just yet, and I think that's what I want to then get to, and I'm not sure at what, uh, what point that comes into things. It could just be that I am in my phase two, 
Hmm. Or maybe I'm moving into my phase three where I've learned how to do things, but there's, I've discovered that there's something a little bit unexplainable that's possibly pushing me back. No, that's but that sounds, that sounds to me like a heading to phase three. Yeah. You, you, Trans, you, I'm, I'm, you feel I'm, like you're heading back to, you thought you'd gone one, two, you're heading to three, but now you're starting to question it. Like, oh, maybe I didn't even get to two after all, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I think that's probably what it feels like when you get to stage three. Like, oh, hang on, there is mystery after all, even though I have understood those things. That This is the mystery, yeah. That's Yeah, you should be embracing that, that mystery. It's magical after all, but you're appreciating it in a deeper way now. I love your three phases, Felix. Well, they're the magician in the desert, so I, I can't take credit for them, but it's a nice way to think about things. Yeah. And, but he, he knew Darren Brown, and that's just amazing, really. So it's a lovely connection to, to Bristol, where we are today as well. And that's true, yeah. 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 So, anyway. No, honestly, Felix, thank you so much. There were so many questions that I didn't bother asking you because they just weren't appropriate or like relevant necessarily. But <laughs> no, well, thank you. Honestly, I, I'm on a quest and it, the quest is to celebrate other people who work closely in connection with nature. I didn't realise that was you until I read your book. You were that person. It's, it's I, I like I say, I describe myself as a physics peasant because I know very little about it in comparison to lots of other people in the world who know a lot more about it but it's it's such an interesting headspace to enter it's such an interesting conceptual space to enter and it really aligns with the things that I'm looking at in terms of causing me to break things down in a different way or at least interpret or look through a different lens and for me that has so much value attached to it so thank you for that probably you're just I, I feel like I'm going in a slightly more scientific route but in a you know in a very uh, low level way just in terms of establishing there's information that I don't have have mm -hmm. that I would like so yeah I appreciate this conversation so much thank you well thanks thank you very much for having me on <laughs> if a tree falls podcast it's been a delight so thank you Felix one thing I said to Felix was that first of all I never thought I would see myself reading a book about physics I didn't think that there would be a crossover but I was pleasantly surprised to learn that there were concepts that emerged throughout his book that form a huge part of my line of inquiry so I was quite immediately captivated by the idea of engaging in a conversation with a physicist who had written about the magic of modern day physics. And that potential to draw a parallel with some of my work and deepen my own line of inquiry with regards to my own experience of food, sensory perception, connection with nature, and the full spectrum and experience of flavour. I was delighted at the opportunity to explore this crossover. I certainly didn't imagine myself wanting to talk to Felix about atoms, particles, photons, protons, the quantum computer, but then I realised rather a few nice little pieces of information and some revelations, and these helped me learn. And so my angle isn't to or wasn't to discuss the ins and outs of physics, it was about opening up our connection and the similarities. A very simple but basic point that Felix touched on in his book was the concept of reductionism and emergence. Reductionism seeks to boil down complex phenomena to the simplest possible descriptions. Emergence is the viewpoint that when many simple things combine, the result may be more than the sum of these parts. This fundamental concept seemed to summarise and typify just about everything that I understood of the world of food and creativity. Thanks to Felix, I'm now reading The Tao of Physics. <laughs> because we're all just trying to make sense of the world, and that's the foundation of physics. Felix and I are both looking through a lens with an endeavour of seeing the essential nature of things. Though my lens is through plants, flavour, connection, human connection, the unseen exchange between earth and human, perception of flavour and experience, but yet our aim seems the same. The further down the rabbit hole of understanding we go, of what it is and why, and of trying to describe the unexplainable, 
or the unknown leads me to converse with different disciplines, capturing the essence of what it all comes down to and seeing the world in this way. We are all connected. Like Rumi said, you are not just a drop in the ocean, you are the entire ocean in one drop. The whole would be more than the sum of its parts is such a relatable concept and one that emerges. And that's how I feel about connecting with wild ingredients, telling the story, gathering and preparing the food and connecting with the people over an exchange of sensory experience, information, and the collective atmosphere or the energy of that experience in that one location. The whole, simply put, is more than the sum of its parts. We truly are from different backgrounds, but yet here we are tackling the same questions in different ways. It's fascinating and unifying to come together.